Hi friends, welcome back to the Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast. Today, John, Shannon, Amanda, and I discuss the Sandhill Cranes. We discuss their massive migration and why they're now showing up in areas of the country where we didn't see them previously. We also discuss whether or not the reputation to mate for life is true. Do Sandhill Cranes cheat? Get your popcorn ready. In addition to the cranes, we also discuss a ruby-crowned kinglet that we've been seeing recently and answer some listener mailbag questions about peacocks. I also want to remind you about our Instagram page. We'll be posting pictures of some of the bird specimen along with each episode. We have pictures of the ivory-billed woodpecker, birds of paradise, and a woodcock up there now. Be sure to check them out at Birds of a Feather Podcast, each word separated by underscores. Now, grab your binoculars. Let's get into the episode. Well, so have you seen any any good birds recently? Has there been any good sightings, or how's uh, how's the spring been going for everybody so far? Yeah, I like this time of year because uh, you're seeing the first young. So I go to a place called Memorial Park Cemetery up in Skokie, and there's a brood of uh, ten wood duck chicks with a female on one of the ponds there. And and the last couple of years, I've been able to watch them grow up, and you know, sometimes you see some of them disappear, but but one year they fledged nine, wow, nine young ducklings that got off that pond, and then, you know that's oh, wow. kind of amazing thing to see. Yeah, yeah, wow, that's awesome. It might be more local. I love the fact that our yard comes to life with both plants and sounds, and I love the shifting of sounds that come in through the windows, um, especially with this work from home. A lot of the time, I have the windows open at this time of year, and I can hear the changing of the of the birds as they come through white crowned sparrows for example it's, yeah it's fun yeah so, yeah so you guys were telling us about the kinglet you guys had yeah yes. yeah so we had one that was i mean he was there for about a week i'd say yeah. um Is and every all? morning yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but it was like every morning he would tap on the window and i'd be at work and amanda would hear him tapping and she'd send pictures of him and yes. we'd see him crowning and see his, his little red feathers on top of his head and yes. Um, eventually, one day on the weekend, I was finally home, and I got to see him, and then it was like all morning we were looking out the window. <laughs> yes. It was great. We were sad when he left. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's the amazing thing is, you know, that bird could be someplace up in central Manitoba right now wow. on a territory. I mean, oh. this is this is what happens with, with migration this time of year, which yeah. is so cool. And it's neat that that's another thing that, you know, we'll get into over the course of the some of the birds we talk about, but but the stopover ecology, the idea that you had that bird for a week, yes. probably means that it was building up to take the next step on its migration and okay. so spend some time okay. in Chicago. Okay, wow. We wondered about that. Yeah. What he was doing, what he why he wanted to come into our house. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then we thought we heard him like a week later yes. in like the backside of our house, yes. and we were like, "Is he close by?" Yeah. He just moved to a different tree, but I think he was. Went up. I do too. I think <laughs> kept it was, on with his migration. It was wishful thinking. Yeah, he yeah. was still around. <laughs> a lot of birds increase their body weight dramatically with fat during oh. migration, and then they burn it off as they go. And if they burn down their reserves, they have to stop. And sometimes it takes them, you know, several days to get up enough reserves again to complete their journey. Okay, but I also love the fact that. This time of year, the males are already getting ready to breed. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming it was looking at its reflection and seeing something that it wanted to keep off its territory and yeah. keep out of the 
its own space. And so, yeah, it's a fun time of year that way. That's yeah, so if you cool. went outside and looked at your windows from the outside, you probably would have seen, seen a very strong reflection from the outside. So that bird was, you know, competing against itself. Oh. Yeah, space. Amanda kept moving the blinds up and down yes. to try to, she was like, I don't want to stress him out. So yeah. she would pull the blinds down, but maybe he was seeing his reflection more. So we yeah. weren't sure how to, what? what the right thing to do was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, um, I showed a lot of people the pictures and a lot of, a big question was why, why he would show his crown at some points and then at not others. And then we've seen other birds that have crowns, like the green heron we saw this weekend Mm -hmm. why do birds display their crowns sometimes and not other times yeah i think so that's their sexual dimorphism meaning males and females look different in ruby crown kinglets and so that red crown is something that the males use for displays but at the same time they're a small sort of bird that's going to want to be inconspicuous so there's probably been selection over time for male ruby crown kinglets to cover up that crown and make it concealed just because it's a little safer for them to be a ruby crown kinglet at that point. Okay. (laughs) But you can flash it to show, A, what species you are, B, that you're a male, and C, that this is my space, so bug off. And (laughs) there's an interesting irony there. So as I say that, there's another species, the other species of kinglet in North America, golden crown kinglet, actually doesn't have a concealed crown. Okay. And so it's interesting that you've got it in one species and not in the other. Yeah, and it was crazy how well he could conceal it. It was like when he would show up in the morning, I thought it was a different bird. And then all yes. of a sudden, you'd start to see it a little bit more, and then he would show it, and then it would retract too. Like, And we could get so close to him that you could kind of see him go through this whole cycle. It was really cool to see. Yeah, and, and all that's about, you know, there's muscles in the base of the feathers that are allowing them to actually do all that, which is really wow. neat. Wow. Well, I think we want to talk a little bit about the Sandhill Cranes and get into them a little bit, speaking of migrations. And so I think last time we were together, we talked a little bit about, so I grew up in like the western suburbs of Chicago and never saw any Sandhill Cranes growing up. And now that we're kind of in the northern suburbs, I'm starting to see them a lot more. And I think you were saying that might be more of a factor of like them, their uh, population growing, that they're doing better um, than kind of location. So they're kind of like a success story you were saying last time. Is that is that true? Yeah, and uh, the thing about sandhill cranes is they have a, a they're another one of these species that has a very large geographic distribution across North America. So they breed from Alaska um, and all across Canada, where there are these migrant populations. And then, in addition, they've got populations that are breeding in the Midwest, and they've also got populations that don't migrate down in Florida and Cuba. Oh, and wow. so, so it's a it's an interesting bird in terms of its flexibility associated with that. And in the Midwest, I, I think that uh, as Europeans first came across Eastern North America, they're good to eat, apparently. Hmm. Um, they were hunted. They had beautiful feathers that mm-hmm. were often used in um, women's clothing and hats mm-hmm. and things like that. And, so. and I think you know the, the population's definitely dropped. They don't have a high reproductive rate. Uh, they lay only a couple eggs at a time. So they're the kind of species that you would expect to have trouble. They're actually doing an awful lot better than than whooping cranes are numerically. And mm-hmm. yet, you know, so, so they're a spectacular bird in the Chicago area. And then as, as you were noting, you can go up to places like Middle Fork, Savannah, in mm-hmm. where you guys have been, and 
they're breeding sandhill cranes in that area, and you'll actually see them fly around uh, when you go up there for and spend a little time. And that's just incredible. Yeah, we've so. seen them in Highland Park even. Um, it's somewhere near us, and, I mean, it's incredible. And you can definitely hear them flying overhead too. Sure. Which when, is, when, when, spring, it, it, when they're moving and the, the wind is right, you can get – large numbers on spring and fall migration coming through the Chicago region. And that's something that I think has been augmented by the population increases in the Midwest. Hmm. Okay. I think we know these things a lot because of technology. So when there's uh, sandhill cranes that are coming over like that, people, our friends, will text us in other places uh, telling us and they're if you know if the person's north, you know pretty soon they're going to be over your house oh, yeah. <laughs> too. And so you get... <laughs> You know, you can communicate a lot more about these things with recording devices. People can figure out what they are mm. um, when they might not have historically known how to yeah. figure out what that giant bird in the sky. <laughs> and they migrate in massive groups, right? They it's can, like these sure. like thousands of them all travel together. And one of the greatest things about them is their voice. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And so I, I like having been in the front yard and hearing them and then it takes a couple minutes before the flock actually arrives and comes over and it's just one of the best feelings to to sit there and go oh man there's going to be a flock of 30 or 40 of these big birds with yeah. their <laughs> necks straight out and their legs behind them and they'll often stop and and catch thermals and so they'll they'll circle okay. for a little bit before they head on i actually think the they try to avoid the city in part because it's a little difficult for them to fly over. But then mm. depending on the wind patterns, they can get pushed along the shore of the lake. And Okay. Yeah. Wow. So. And then when they land, I mean, they're such an interesting looking bird. They're gorgeous. Like the, the red feathers around their eyes and their kind of slender like legs. I mean, they're, when you see them, you're like, it jumps out. Yeah. It, it yeah. looks different than yeah. anything yeah. else we Definitely see around here. thought of as some of the most graceful and elegant birds mm. that, uh, and, that are alive. And the whole family's like that. So mm -hmm. one of the things that people will always say about cranes is there are species all over the world, and they're really revered in almost everywhere that they occur, hmm. even if they haven't been protected quite as well as mm -hmm. they should be in a lot of those places. That's mm -hmm. one of the things that I was looking up how many we had. We have 172 specimens. The oldest one is in, I think, 1883 or something like that in the wow. 1880s. But the one thing, if you look at our database at the Field Museum online, is that we have a really super-duper old taxonomy. And so if you want to search, uh, you have to go back in time to remember what the taxonomy is before mm. you can search. And so I tried to find them. I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. And then I was looking under Antigone, which is their new um, genus, and they mm. used to be under Groose. And so if you look in our database, you have to put in Groose. But then I thought, why are they called, what is Antigone? What did, what is that? And, uh, you know, there's people who have, there's, there were a few people who have written, even some fairly well-known ornithologists who wrote that they thought it had to do with the, their bare neck because Antigone was, um, Oedipus's daughter, and oh. she was known for her fidelity, for her honor. Um, and when she was asked to do something that was not honorable, she was both imprisoned and then before she could be let go by her father, she was she hang she hanged herself. Oh. Um, and so the whole neck part of it. But I don't think that's what it is. I think oh. that because um, she was also thought of and revered that her 
fidelity, her honor, were so important that I think that's why this bird is named that way, because cranes have that reputation. That's kind of how they're viewed yeah. across a lot of different cultures yeah. is for their grace and their elegance. And mm. um, they mate for life, which is sweet at mm -hmm. some level. But we know a lot of things that we thought mated for life don't. Oh. So <laughs> there's a lot of cheating in the bird. <laughs> I don't know. Has anybody done a study of... I don't, whether, I don't, they're, I, whether sandhill cranes cheat. <laughs> so not that I know of. There's, there's, there's this liter there's a whole field of study about extra pair copulations, and, which is the scientific term for it. I would guess that cranes are, which is interesting because during spring and fall migration, they are in these big flocks. I presume the pairs are there in those situations so that, uh, that I've presume they migrate together, and yet they come up to Wisconsin or northern Illinois, and suddenly you'll that's what you'll see is two birds in a field, and, mm -hmm. and that's the pair. So I don't know. I don't wonder. I meant to, I meant to look it up, but I don't yeah, know some if of those anybody things knows are hard that. To... But it's been the use of DNA technology to explore nesting behavior has been revelatory mm. to show that the social father is often not the biological father. Of, uh, of young in a nest, for example. So, you know, females are choosing mates, sometimes more than one, to put eggs in the same nest, maybe for different characteristics. Maybe one mm. is very good at helping at the nest, but the other one dances better, oh. you know? <laughs> and they want to make sure that their offspring have a lot of genetic variability so that they, they themselves, as females, have their, you know, genes perpetuated more but yeah I mean, and Shannon are you talking about cranes specifically or all types no, of I'm birds? No I'm talking about all types of okay. birds. So everywhere we've looked we've realized that mating for life is a nice concept but I, I would say it would say not so much well, a actually, reality. I was going to say not everywhere but cranes would be one of those places where I think people might not look immediately just because the pair bond seems to be so strong during mm -hmm. the breeding grounds. So the, the male participates in incubation and, you know, they do this mating ritual where they have a bunch of complex dances. One of the neat things about the Midwest is up in Baraboo, Wisconsin, is the International Crane Foundation. Mm -hmm. And so there's a spectacular place that was created by this one guy, George Archibald, and it's been his vision to have this facility to help rear cranes to conserve them all over the world. And so there's a, it's a really interesting place to visit um, that's not that far away. Oh, wow. Very cool. Cool. And then, so Nebraska is so famous for the cranes, obviously. Like, that's where most of them go through. I mean, what, what is it about Nebraska versus, you know, now we're seeing them in Wisconsin, Illinois. I mean, I know that Nebraska is where most of them kind of filter through. So, so it's so it's interesting. So so my, they have all these different migration routes, mm -hmm. and so Nebraska is one area, and then from Nebraska, I think they go on to a place called Cheyenne Bottoms, which is in uh, Kansas, which is mm -hmm. another big area, and. The birds here, actually, a lot of them go to a place called Jasper Pulaski Wildlife Area in uh, in Indiana. Mm. And so there can be in these places, there are thousands and thousands of cranes during oh. the right period of time when they're when they're there. And, and so, again, I, I just think it's at some level, it's safety in numbers. It's it's uh, places where they can roost uh, um and not be bothered too much, and then go out and find uh, food 
before they move on on their migration route. And so all these places are are destinations for for birders a lot of times to mm. to go when the cranes are are moving. And it's definitely something to see that many big birds in a mm. in a in a given area. With, National but, Geographic has some fantastic migration maps that they've put out throughout the years that show very clearly what the um, migration routes are hmm. uh, in birds, actually throughout the world, but there's been several versions of a North American map that can help you understand why there are funnels um, where a lot of things kind of get concentrated together during their migration routes. I, I love maps, but I love those maps. I think they're really pretty amazing. Hmm. And awesome. some of these birds, I mean, just think about a tiny bird migrating from the North Pole to the South Pole. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really astonishing. Yes. Yeah. It was interesting. You said some of the sandhill cranes that there's ones that don't migrate that are in, did you say Florida and? In Cuba. In Cuba. Yeah, there's a population on Cuba. It is, why is it that those ones wouldn't? I mean, I know that's a big question, but. I mean, so there are a bunch of different questions. So, mm-hmm. so one is, you know, do they just stop or do other individuals just stop? And so one, it's it's, it's a, population genetic question. In other words, maybe what happened was over evolutionary time, a group of birds stopped migrating and have become genetically distinct. And I think the the Cuban and the Florida birds are considered both different subspecies. Okay. And so that implies there may be a little bit of genetic structure, although I don't know that it's that much. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is a area of active interest is like, why do that? And I think a lot of it comes back to why not? I mean, migration has lots of problems associated with it. And so mm-hmm. if you're a sandhill crane and you think you can make a, a go of it and you can find a mate, you might establish a population in a mm-hmm. place like Cuba. And for all I know, Cuba may be the result of overshooting of migrant sandhill cranes that wintered in Florida. And now you're on an island where you've got to figure out whether you want to cross a big body of water to mm. try to get to some place that you may or may not be there. I mean, I think there's a lot of variation in resilience of mm. species to changes, whether that's um, making a behavioral choice to not migrate. Mm. And I think we're going to see a lot of that with climate change in the future. Mm. We're going to be seeing the resilience of species and likely some pretty dramatic changes in migratory behavior mm. as well. You know, there are things that are stay year-round, hummingbirds, for example, that are in Louisiana that weren't there 50 years ago. Mm. But as feeders, as it warms up and there are feeders places, some birds are making the choice to to overwinter in places where they wouldn't have historically. Mm. And I think that with climate change, there are going to be a lot of changes like this. And not necessarily by choice, but by necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, if migrating becomes even more stressful uh, because the planet's getting warmer, you're going to figure out through evolutionary time, short periods of evolutionary time, that it's better to stay somewhere than it is to to try to go. And it could be that the wintering grounds then have food items that they didn't before that make it more likely that you can survive yeah. over the winter. You know, Chicago's getting a lot better well, in the it's, winter. It's, it's, I hate to say that, but it's true. There's um, 
you know, there's a lot of ameliorating of the climate in Chicago. Well, and then there's also the historical facts, which are that during the height of the ice ages, this was all ice where mm. we're s doing this show. And, and uh, it's easy to forget that there probably was very few pockets of usable habitat for things like sandhill cranes north of here then. So what did they do? Well, in all likelihood, they were breeding much farther south at that point and then expanded north as the ice receded and these areas opened up to them. And so all those kinds of questions are really interesting from the perspective of understanding movement biology and have a lot of different factors as you go over time. John's had a number of students who have studied migration and the properties of migrating birds and changes through time. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So could there be like a group of cranes then that would just decide one year, like, we're not going to do it? And yeah. are, there's examples, yeah. like current examples yeah. of that. Where you and could, as long as they wow. survived in a condition to breed, then, you know, their, their offspring are going to learn that they don't have to go anywhere either. Okay. Mm -hmm. wow. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because the thing I can't get my mind around is why wouldn't you have continual influx of other individuals Mm -hmm. And if you have that, you shouldn't become genetically di differentiated. And yet, in lots of these situations, what we see is genetic differentiation actually evolves over time. So that could be that natural selection is pushing genes in that population because they're in a novel environment during the breeding season that requires a bunch of things. It could be genetic drift, but it, it could also be that there was something climatically important that led there to be a period of time where there weren't there wasn't even a possibility of exchange in some place so so cuba is a good example because that cuban population in all likelihood is not receiving any influx of individuals from the north american migrant populations with any regularity because they'd be making a mistake to do it mm -hmm. now i was going to point out that, that i was thinking about this i spent this time in bermuda recently doing field work and in preparing for that trip, I was looking through the literature, and there are fossil cranes known from Bermuda. Oh, wow. And so they probably got pushed out there at some point and were on this tiny little island. I mean, island. think about that. Bermuda's in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. yeah. How on earth exactly. does that happen? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, the interesting thing about cranes, too, which is good with respect to essentially colonizing a new place is they fly in flocks. Mm. Mm. If you're an individual bird and you show up someplace, you've got no mate. Mm. But cranes at some level, if they can stay aloft, are predisposed to be able to actually do pretty well. Now, at the same time, it's kind of surprising that there aren't any cranes in South America. Mm. So they've never they've never got there. And, mm. and, and yet they're in Africa, they're in Australia, and they're all the way through Asia and, and Europe, too. We may wow. find crane fossils in South America someday. I mean, it's an interesting mm -hmm. thing. Because there's always these things that blow your mind about fossils, yeah. where things are. I mean, there are lots of herons in South America. I don't know. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, Shannon just brought up something I wanted to ask. So RJ and I, we were at the Skokie Lagoons last weekend and um, saw a lot of blue herons flying and that's they're really easy to identify when you see them in the sky but sometimes we would see them just for a little bit 
fly with their necks out, but usually mm-hmm. it was all crunched up. And that's something I love about the sandhill crane is you can, it's really distinctive when you look up and its neck is long out and its legs are long out. Why do they fly that way versus like a heron who kind of crunches itself up? Yeah, good question. And all, all the cranes do that. Um, I don't know that there's a really solid hypothesis for 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 why they wouldn't. Um, Amanda had an idea. Okay, good. What Let's was hear it? it. You don't remember? <laughs> you had a really good point when we were looking at it. You thought when the heron was flying with its neck out straight that we could hear it. Um, Oh, vocalizing, that's true. And then when it crunched its neck up, we couldn't hear it anymore. So it was like it had its neck extended and we could hear it. Yes. And then once it crunched its neck up. Huh. And so, so cranes are so vocal. Well, and they have a spectacular tracheal system. In oh, other words, do, it actually. comes down yeah. and it actually comes oh. all the way back up. In there, it's yeah. So, so oh. that very well may be. Yeah, that's the part of their okay. mating behaviors. Yeah. That's part of their life is to have. To I was I was going to throw out the idea of, on the heron side of things that that cranes kind of walk around and stick their head down and grab stuff, mm-hmm. and they'll eat. You know, they eat a lot of grain, but they'll they'll eat a if they see a, a baby killdeer, for instance, or a mouse, they'll eat stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Herons are actually jabbing at stuff. And so I sometimes wonder if because of the nature of that jabbing evolution, it just makes sense to curl your neck when you're flying because it's a little dangerous to not do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they it. might yeah. have different muscles. Yeah. For be, I mean, yeah. this is out of my area, so we can't speculate wildly all we want without data. But, yeah, it could be that they have the capacity to do that yeah. and cranes don't have the capacity okay. to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't is, know. It is yeah. an absolutely terrific field mark. Yes, between it the certainly two. is. Yeah. And it's interesting yeah. that the, the Great Blue was not doing that and it was calling because I, I, yeah. I, I think that's yeah. that, that works for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Should we uh, jump into some mailbag questions before we wrap it up? Sure. So this first one is uh, from Nav from West Sacramento, California. And so she says, in my hometown of West Sacramento, we live in a rural area with lots of farms. For as long as I can remember, we've had peacocks walking around our neighborhood. Rumor has it a bird enthusiast let them free range. They eventually mated and now have about 30 plus peacocks roaming the streets and flying on the rooftops. When I lived in Los Angeles, I would routinely see a flock of parrots flying around. Same backstory. My question is, do non-migratory birds typically just thrive where they end up, or would they still try to migrate somewhere more specific to their particular species' needs? If I brought some flamingos to Sacramento, would they try to get back somewhere more tropical or just stay where they are and consider that home? So so that's a, a terrific question without an entirely simple answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, introduced birds are bizarre experiments. There are peacocks in Miami, for instance, and so and that's a definitely a non-migratory bird, so they're not going to go anywhere, and they're probably not going to evolve migration to, to leave there. But what I'm thinking of is a bird like European goldfinch, which one of our students is beginning to study. And some of the populations of European goldfinch are definitely migratory. But coming back to the idea of Bermuda, the reason we went there was to study European goldfinches that have been out there for 150 years, introduced by humans. 
couldn't get off the island, and so they're living there, and they're not migrating. Hmm. So I, I think, I mean, this is something that, that there's probably some genetic underpinnings to, to I mean, there has to be genetic underpinnings to migration in a lot of ways in order to do some of the crazy things that Shannon was talking about that birds do. And yet at the same time, if things are good or if you can survive, you probably want to have the capacity to override those genes and just stay in a place too. And the evidence suggests that there are species that have actually that actually have that that have had that happen over their mm-hmm. evolutionary history. I, mean, I think of parrots in that context because there's lots of parrots that kind of escape and yeah. get all over the place and. And a lot of, I mean, the instinctive thing is I think that parents, parrots are tropical, right? But they're not all tropical. So there are some that live in the southern parts of South America, for example. And that's the lineage that's giving us the parrots that are in Hyde Park, for example, right? So they're in an environment that is not tropical, but they, they don't, they're, their ancestry is not from a tropical place. And mm. you think about, we used to have Carolina parakeets. And so not every, even though now we think of most parrots being tropical birds and TV shows have you thinking of them mm. like that too. But that's not that's not really the case. So there's a lot of things that go into whether or not an introduced uh, taxon can last. And most of them go extinct. Mm. They can make a population. It lasts for a little while. It goes extinct. So there used to be an establishing population around Evanston where we live of um, of parrots and, you know, but through the last 10, 15 years since our son stopped playing baseball, um, they don't exist up there in the same way anymore. Hmm. Um, and goldfinches, there used to be a population of of European goldfinches on Long Island, and it went extinct, mm-hmm. too. So I think there's a lot of kind of ebbing and flowing of these things mm-hmm. that uh, more than we know. Yeah, yeah we have a yeah. student who's uh, at the University of Chicago in the Department of Ecology and Evolution who's studying parrots that have been introduced in lots of different places like California. And one of the things that he was looking at the niches in their native range and trying to understand how that correlated with where they survived. And the one thing that I've always taken away from the work he's doing is that for the most part, none of these parrot species ever leave the urban areas they're in. Mm. And I think the urban areas provide them with a lot of introduced plants um, that may be able to provide forage and they're going to feeders and, and things like that. And so that's a big factor, which means they're probably not going to start migrating because if they migrate, they'd have to find some place that actually was similar and that may not be out there. And they're not hunted in most urban environments too, right? If you put something like that outside of the city, they could easily be shot with a shotgun and things like that. But, Mm. you know, peregrine falcons are pretty safe in uh, urban environments now, nesting on ledges and things like that. Mm. They're not being... They're not being hunted, not being shot. I mean, people are getting shot, but not wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> and those aren't the same. To be a bird. That's not the same gun that you would use to take down a peregrine falcon. But, but yeah. So urban environments are are safer. You know, the long term effects of light pollution are things that we are just starting to think about, but don't have any data on. But so there are issues, stress associated with urban uh, environments. John's had a student who studied. Uh, 
the influence of urban environments on on birds in Peru. And, you know, it's pretty stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are things, I think, that we can do from a city planning perspective to uh, making corridors of connections of habitat that mm-hmm. lower the stress of birds. And I don't know about light pollution, but light pollution costs people, mm-hmm. too, not just seeing the northern lights and things like that because... We don't do that. We can't do that here because it's too much light in the sky. So I've seen that like with um, like, let's say, deer that are migrating where they have like over a a freeway, they'll put like a pass where they can go over. Is there anything like for birds that can help with migration in an urban environment? Like, is there anybody that's come up with any ideas to try to? Well, you can. There there are natural experiments in the Chicago area that are just spectacular, which is that in a sense, we've got these forest preserved. Mm-hmm. landscapes all along the rivers and so mm-hmm. there's actually native vegetation so if you're a forest bird a migrating warbler i mean obviously there are very clear challenges associated with the buildings but those rivers and the vegetation along both banks allow things to move north and south really easily okay and so those are they're, they're, yeah so there's a there's a lot of evidence associated with what green spaces mean and, and one of the things I've always loved about Chicago is I had no idea before I got here how much green space there was actually within the city limits yeah it's really amazing uh, we're yeah. lucky we live near the um, Skokie Swift L tracks uh, and the vegetation associated with that I think is one of the reasons why we have a lot of birds in our yard. So there are a lot of places you don't think of that provide habitat for wildlife, not just rats, um, but (laughs) provide habitat, uh, even nesting sites, which we know that the birds are nesting in the Skokie Swift track, the area just on the other side of the tracks. So there are lots of places that, you know, are semi- wildlife that mm. people yeah. just don't think of right yeah, yeah. okay awesome. well i think that's about it for for time for today um so i think we got to call it at that um so thanks everyone for listening um is there anybody anything that anyone wants to add nope nope <laughs> all right we thanks, don't have everyone. a good way of ending these i podcasts. know we're gonna have to yeah, do we? <laughs> well, I, i'm gonna say go birding every single time yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was waiting yeah, for you john yeah. I, was, yeah. I didn't want to get redundant yeah, yeah. no like, you can say it again and we'll add it we'll add it Standard message. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It should come from you. All right. Yeah. You can say it again and I'll edit it in. There we go. <laughs> go birding. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Just a reminder that you can reach out to us at podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com with your mailbag questions. We wanted to thank Earhole Studios in Chicago for allowing us to record at your studios. We appreciate the help. We've been receiving a ton of great feedback, so thank you to everyone for listening and for your continued support. We're still trying to get the word out there, so if you've enjoyed our podcast, please spread the word and let somebody know about us. We have more episodes dropping every week, so please subscribe and continue to listen. Thanks, everyone.